You may have the right shingle hanging on the door. You may have all the things hanging along the walls, but if you don't have the innate desire to continue to grow and learn and believe that you've already got it all, you're going to be dead in the water before you ever get started. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. You've probably heard that when you drive a brand new car off the dealership lot, it immediately drops in value by a few thousand dollars. The same thing happens to your ministry education. Now, your education doesn't lose value, but from the time you complete your courses until the time your diploma arrives in your mailbox, things have changed. The point is, whether you have a degree or not, there is never a good time to sit back and stop learning. A good leader in ministry has his head on a swivel and is ready to adapt to whatever lies ahead. On this Level Paths podcast, Rex and Dr. Matt discuss adaptive leadership. Here's Rex. Welcome back to Level Paths, where we are looking for the glory of God in clear view. I am Rex Howe, the president of Tri-State Bible College, and I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Matt Shamblin, the Appalachian Research Fellow of the Appalachian Ministry Institute at Tri-State Bible College. Well, we want to talk about adaptive leadership, leading for change and in change. We want to contextualize that to Appalachia. That's our immediate context here, although I think some of the things that we'll talk about would apply in rural settings all over the world and even in urban settings in some sense. But we want to start with a very famous quote from a guy named Peter Drucker culture eats strategy for breakfast. So our podcast today, we're going to dive into culture. We're going to dive into strategy. And we want to understand, Matt, why is it that culture is superior? And I think what you and I feel is that we're talking about relationships here, aren't we? Yeah. There's a simple answer why culture is superior because you're dealing with people. And anywhere there's people, there's going to be a developed culture. And when there's a developed culture, your responsibility and goal as a leader is to lead people and ultimately to lead people, you're going to have to change a culture. You've got to take them where they are, from where they are to where God would have them to be. I mean, when we think about leadership, we're not just talking about leadership in general, but we're talking about Christian leadership. And so that brings to mind that basic definition of leadership given by Richard Henry Blackaby, that leadership's moving people onto God's agenda. And so in order to be a leader, you got to know where you're going. You have to have a place to go. And in order to lead to a place where you're going, you have to go from somewhere. And as you're going from somewhere and you're leading, you're taking people with you. And so those people have a culture that's developed, a culture that's built, and that culture is going to eat your strategy for lunch unless you have those relationships. Yeah, I mean, we can think about the Bible here, can't we? I mean, let's think about for just a moment, Moses, right? Moses was called by God to enter into a leadership moment with God's people who had been part of the Egyptian cultural framework for 400 years. We find culture eating strategy for breakfast a number of times during that exodus and wilderness venture, don't we? That's exactly right. And we see Moses adapting and growing as a leader. If we look closely, we see Moses with the vision of where to go. This vision's from God. 
and we see the resistance of the people. Did you bring us out in the wilderness to die here? Is that what you've done? There's uh, incredible obstacles, but a lot to learn as we pay attention to what's going on there with Moses. So this is true everywhere. Relationships, culture, foundational bedrock for leadership and change. Why do you think that this is contextually important in Appalachia? Because Appalachians are a clannish people. Appalachians are people who have been taken advantage of throughout their history. Appalachians are people who have struggled throughout their history. They've had to fight for what they have. And, you know, I was told about one organization, a former leader of that organization with his finger poking into my chest. He was speaking about West Virginians. He said, West Virginians, listen, that's the only state that is fully Appalachian. He said, they like to fight. Well, I don't know that it's so much that they like to fight. Is this just, they won't turn away from a fight because they've had to fight for everything that they have. It's ingrained into the culture. And so as important as relationships are, anywhere else in the world. They're always important in leadership. When you're dealing with people who've been taken advantage of when they at times feel less than, they're going to be more resistant to change because they know who they are, they know who their people are, and they know you ain't one of them. Let's say I'm a new leader in Appalachia. I'm just not convinced that the culture is what it needs to be and the relationships are not what they need to be. Where do I start to try to improve, massage, to make those relationships flourish? What are some of the things I need to do in Appalachia? You're going to need to be open and spend time with people. Recognize a change in Appalachia is going to take a lot longer than you thought it was going to take. That doesn't mean that you spend all your time sitting in the cab of a truck, hanging out with people, but it does mean you spend some of your time doing that. Leadership within Appalachia is going to be like leadership anywhere else. It's going to be different. It's going to be, as you said, adaptive. It's going to be contextualized. But you, you've got to build relationships. Not all relationships are the same. Not everybody's going to be your best friend. That's not a bad thing. It's just a reality. People have to learn confidence in you. Remember, when they're buying into the vision, they're also buying into the vision caster. And so as you are trying to lead others forward, they have to have confidence in you. And so you're going to work on these relationships and you're going to try to accumulate wins wherever you can. Now, I want to talk to you a moment about a great West Virginian. Don't turn this off when I say his name. Nick Saban is a great West Virginian. He's a great Appalachian. And when we think about Nick Saban, the reason he is so polarizing, you can say whatever you want. But the reason he's so polarizing is because he is a winner and almost certainly his team has not just beat your team, they have beat them into submission. But here's what we know about a Nick Saban. Here's what we know about a Bobby Bowden who was in Appalachia, a Lou Holtz Appalachian, hurry up Yost in Appalachian, on and on we could go. They're all leaders. And we have confidence in them. Now, look, if you and I, if we were standing in a crowd of people, they were going to say, okay, we need somebody off the cuff to lead this football team that their coach has just passed out. He's incapable. He's not there. Are they going to pick me? I have no background in that. Are they going to pick a Nick Saban? Well, listen, 
even if it was your grandmother's football team, you would put Nick Saban as the coach. Why? Because he's a proven winner. Lou Holtz, a proven winner. Bobby Bowden, a proven winner. On and on we could go. And that's what happens in leadership. As you accumulate wins, each win builds on the previous one and they gain confidence in you. And those relationships, you know, what happens, even when there's failures, they'll say, I mean, think about it. With great football coaches, this is easy. When there's a great football coach and he goes through a losing season, what do they do? Well, if you have someone with a long winning record like a Bobby Bowden or a Nick Saban, they can lose for a long, long time before they're ousted. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Why? Because they have a track record. We know they know how to win in the past. And then this starts to come, oh, well, they could do it in the past, but can they do it today? And that also means as a leader that you have to be willing to lead in situations where you may have the title as the main leader, but you may not have the influence as the main leader. John Maxwell talks about this very thing in one of his books where he goes to his church. He's the pastor. He's the guy with the title of the main leader. But the reality was he was not the leader. But what makes him a great leader, John Maxwell, that is, though he had the title as the top leader, he was willing to lead when someone else had the influence of the top leader. If you're humble enough, which is a quality of an effective leader, you may not be the one with the most influence, but you have the potential to influence those who do have the most influence. Mm. As long as you're not worried about who gets the credit, you can accomplish great things as a leader. That's very important. Let's move into strategy a little bit. You're familiar with uh, one particular author about leadership and change. So the father of all leadership change is a man named John Cotter. John Cotter is not a Christian, but his ideas have been taken by many Christians and taken as their own. He has really done the work, the science behind the process of leadership change. And so when we think about leadership and change, recognize that God has you there, not because the people, the place, the organization is where it needs to be, but he's got you there to lead them from where they are to where they need to be. As we think about leadership and we think about leading change, We can't just have the relationships. We have to recognize that we have those relationships because together we're going somewhere. That means we have to be able to move from where we are to where we're going. And in order to go from where we are to where we're going, we have to have a vision of the future that is better than where we are right now. Mm -hmm. There has to be enough motivation. And sometimes motivation comes because you've not been able to pay the bills. Sometimes motivation comes because attendance is low. Sometimes motivation comes because the baptistry is dry. Sometimes motivation comes because the little old ladies are too hot or most likely too cold sitting in the sanctuary. And so there's going to be influence. Think about it. If the little ladies sitting in the sanctuary complain enough, and it only takes a little bit, if they complain enough, the thermostat's going to be moved in the sanctuary. That's just an easy, simple illustration because they recognize that, listen, if grandma ain't happy, nobody's happy. And so we've got to be able to make that move. Remember, leadership comes at the will of another person. That's why these relationships matter, not because we're going to manipulate people to get them to go where we're going. But remember, we're trying to move them onto the agenda that God has for them. 
And so we built these relationships because we have a vision, a future that's better than where we are. We want to entice them. Now, look, you can do this thing where you make sure that you stack the votes and when the church votes, that you have the votes 51%. I heard someone say once, what part of 51% is in the majority? The 49% that's going to eat you alive. If you only have 51% following you in a church, you are in big, big trouble. And remember, it's not about us against them. Your responsibility is to lead all of them forward. Moses, his responsibility was to lead the people forward who were saying, you have brought us to the wilderness to die. That's what you brought us out here for. But he had to lead them forward. And that's what leaders do. Sometimes it's going to go bad, but then you've got to work to bring them back. And that's going to happen. The reason that you have the grace to bring them back is those relationships have been built. So what about Cotter? I mean, I know he has eight principles of leadership and which of those stick out to you from a strategy perspective? Each one of them, they're fantastic. But the one that sticks out the most and that has been proven in Appalachia is number five, empowering broad-based action. The reason I say this is that this is so key is because the most successful evangelization in Appalachia was when the Methodists empowered local preacher boys and equipped local preacher boys to go out and pastor churches and plant churches and enable the leadership to come from the people. Now, that's interesting because leadership structure within the Methodist church is a top-down structure. It is an Episcopal-type structure, but those types of leadership strategies had never worked in Appalachia, whether it be the Catholics or the Presbyterians or the Lutherans or the Episcopalians. When they came, they failed in evangelizing Appalachia because it was top-down. But when the people were empowered up every holler on every mountaintop. There's a little white frame Methodist church. And those churches were not pastored and nor planted by the organization of the Methodists. They were planted by people who were empowered. That's ultimately what you want because that's multiplication. That's what we see in the New Testament. That as people were discipled, we see the gospel spread rapidly because people were empowered with the gospel message and sent by the the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the one that stands out most clearly. As you talk about that, I'm thinking to my days in Illinois, in rural Illinois, learning about probably the movement that could be credited with the start of our church in Illinois. In Norway, in the mid-1800s, you had the State Lutheran Church, which some would have described as dead. And you had this lay person named Hans Nielsen Hauge, who started preaching on the countrysides of Norway in barns. He was arrested nine times because he broke the Anti-Conventicle Act in Norway, which outlawed lay preaching. But he led a major, major revival movement among the Lutherans of Norway in repentance and being born again and lay ministry. And it was uh, in the mid-1800s that a young 21-year-old Peter Andreas Rasmussen in Bergen, Norway, heard Hauge preach and was born again and left the business in Bergen and traveled over to America to be the pastor of West Lisbon Church, (laughs) where I pastored. He founded 
Many churches in that area in the Fox River Valley pastored for 44 years, died and buried in Lisbon, Illinois. But it all started with this broad base that you're talking about. Enabling common folk to do the work. That's as simple as it can be. And we've got to remember when common folk are doing the work, and this is no disrespect because this is how it all goes. This is how leadership is developed. It's going to get messy. The theology is not going to be perfect. I mean, remember, we even see in the New Testament bringing people aside and saying, hey, you're preaching this message of John the Baptist. We have a fuller message for you now. If you're excited about what John the Baptist had to say, wait till you hear this. I mean, that changes everything, you know. And so people do what they know to do. We have to empower them to do that, but we have to develop them to be more than what they are. What is the name of the John Cotter books? Leading Change. Leading Change. John Cotter Leading Change. All right. Now, the book I've been reading is by Todd Bolzinger, and it's called Canoeing the Mountains with uh, the subtitle Christian Leadership in Unchartered Territory. It's a recent book. As you talk about empowering the, the local or the lay leadership to be a part of the change process, my favorite part of this book is that as he's developing adaptive leadership principles, he's also telling the story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And I love stuff like this, Matt. I love adventure stories. I love reading about Mount Everest and the summits of Mount Everest. And I've just loved this book as he's developed the story of Lewis and Clark, Thomas Jefferson commissioning it. And you know, the title, Canoeing the Mountains, has this idea of these were river explorers expecting, like the rest of the world, to find a river or trail of rivers that was going to take them all the way to the Pacific from the interior. And instead, what they found was the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> and so when that happens, you have to change. Uh, your canoes are not going to do you any good when you have the Rocky Mountains to go forward into. And so one of the people they come across in the story, and people are familiar with this, is Sacagawea. And they found Sacagawea as they were trying to find an experienced frontiersman, experienced military man who had some experience in that rocky terrain so that they could acquire horseback, that they could make connections with the Indian tribes so that they could make their way all the way to the Pacific. Well, the most important and valuable resource became this 16, 17-year-old Shoshone Indian woman who was a nursing mother, and they had to adapt what they were looking for. I think that speaks to your principle, what you just shared about broadening the base. You have to look at the resources God has providentially put in your place and situation. You may uncover some things that are just amazing. When we think about a strategy and we think about that moving people onto God's agenda, we have to recognize that we may have an idea of where we're going to go. This is where God's called us to go. But we have to be sensitive that as the steps that maybe we've laid out, maybe we've designed an entire strategy to accomplish that vision, to recognize that by the work of the Holy Spirit, as people grow, they're going to change. And the Holy Spirit's going to massage that vision. And what ultimately turns out is, yes, you may end up where you envisioned you would be, but it's going to be a better place than you could have imagined, because not only are there going to be more people with you along the way, there's going to be pieces and parts that you never could have fathomed before. 
And so you can't be blind. Leadership cannot happen with blinders. You know, you put blinders on a horse so it can only see forward and we can become so enamored by the vision and even the strategy that we have that we're blind to the work that God's doing around us. And we have to be sensitive to that and know that the church is not the pastor. The church is not the deacons. We're all a part of the church and we have to be sensitive to what God is doing in them, not to the point that the vision is completely derailed, but sensitive enough that it becomes better. Imagine the snowball rolling down a hill and it's going to be larger and larger and larger. And it's going to pick up things all along the way. And hopefully those are good things. This is what leadership does. We bring on the good things, allow the good things and remove the bad things. And so we've got to bring that along because remember, whose vision is it ultimately? It's not ultimately your vision. It's ultimately God's vision. And you're just a servant in it. I love that word sensitivity that you just used about, you know, just being aware. What is God doing? Who is he provided? Who are the people and the resources that are already here that maybe I don't see yet? Lord, open my eyes to see what you see. And in this book, he has this quote, a couple quotes I want to share with you, Matt. He defines adaptive leadership as energizing a community of people. So there we have relationships toward their own transformation, taking them from where they are to where they need to be in order to accomplish a shared mission, not just the pastor, not just the deacons, but the whole church in the face of a changing world. And that changing world part, he says, the world that you were trained for is already disappearing. Isn't that startling? It's startling. And unfortunately, I can look at my own seminary training and see that it's true. When I finished seminary, I was perfectly equipped to pastor a church in 1985, as I graduated my final seminary degree in 2009, my seminary training was 20 years old when it was brand new. And fortunately, when we're a leader, you know, you often hear this adage, a leader is a lifelong learner. And you may have been given great tools in seminary, but you also have to continue that education. You may have the right shingle hanging on the door. You may have all the things hanging along the walls, but if you don't have the innate desire to continue to grow and learn and believe that you've already got it all, you're going to be dead in the water. I mean, imagine that, dead in the water before you ever get started. The more I think about seminary and and just my training in general, as I look back, it was a test. The whole thing was just one big test of my character, of my competency that resulted in something, I hope, I think I've experienced this, that encourages sustainability. It puts something in me that is enduring for the change that I'm going to encounter. I can see that. The difficulty of pressing forward and trying to serve your family well, trying to make sure that they have food on the table, you're completing classes, and maybe you're pastoring a church all at the same time, there is a challenge there. And I think that one of the greatest things that you can learn in seminary is the stretching so that you have the capacity to do a whole lot of things all at the same time. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is about the content. It is about the courses. It's about the exegesis. It's about all that. It is. All the details are important. But really, this product of who you are when you leave as a result of what you've been through and the wholeness of it, that's really the gold. There's so much in this book that I, I wish 
you know, we had hours and hours to talk about. And I think this is important. He gives four principles for what do you do in the midst of change? How do you lead well in the midst of change, especially when something like sabotage happens? There was a particular person who attempted to sabotage, I can't remember his name, but attempted to sabotage the Lewis and Clark expedition. Of course, we can see this in the scripture too, right? With Judas trying to sabotage and Achan sabotaging during Joshua's day. And we can, we can look back and find individuals who do things that sort of sabotage the mission, right? So he gives four principles that I think are relevant for us as we build our strategy and as we handle, you know, water rapids or sabotaging people. He says, first, keep your conviction. You got to keep your conviction. Whatever the conviction is that God has laid on your heart for ministry or for your your mission, you must keep that. That is primary. You have to keep your conviction. The second thing he says is stay connected. Don't, because of hard times or sabotage, don't close yourself in and become alone. It's very important to stay connected. Stay connected even to the people who are causing the problem. You know, we've heard this phrase, keep your friends close, keep your enemies even closer. (laughs) That's not biblical. But I think the point is that when you disengage and you retreat and isolate yourself, you're creating a vacuum, you're creating a void. And you need to continue to be connected, to continue to promote your conviction in the midst of whatever it is that's going on. The other thing he said is stay calm, stay with your conviction, stay connected and stay calm. We want to uh, do our best to be the leader who's not afraid. How many times in the Bible the Lord reminds us that he's with us? How many times the Lord commands us not to be afraid because he is with us? And as hard times come, as sabotage comes, as change is happening, we want to stay calm and be steady. And then finally, he says, stay the course. That's that horizon, right? That's that. This is where we're going. Uh, This is the transformation that we're headed toward. This is our horizon uh, as a church or as as an organization, and we want to stay on that course. So I just thought those were really helpful. Great reminders of how to move forward when it seems like you're not moving at all. Leadership in Appalachia and change in Appalachia is not going to come quickly. Mm. Only in the most dire circumstances are we going to see change in Appalachia move at a fast rate. It's important to remember that as you lead, churches that are smaller are going to be led differently than churches that are medium-sized and certainly churches that are a larger size. Recognize that what may have worked in a larger setting is it's different than what's going to work in a medium setting and a smaller setting. More people are involved in leadership in a smaller church than are in a larger church. And by right. that, I mean The people in the congregation have a bigger say than they do in a larger. And that's not because of anything other than just the requirement of leading a larger organization. And the same is going to be the case from a medium to a larger church. The organization's got to require that. But no, God's called you to the church in order to lead them to where he would have them to be. But remember, in order for you to lead them there, you've got to go with them. You've got to lead the way. And he's called you there. Maybe you're finding yourself in a position where you don't have the skill. A lot of guys bail out right here. I don't have the skill to take them from where I am to where they need to be. Here's what you've got to know. God's not only called you to the church, but he's called the church to you. And so if that's the case, then 
you've got to develop. You've got to acquire those skills in order to get them to where they need to be. And that may mean you're going to need to read more. You're going to listen more. You're going to need to be mentored by leaders who have greater capacity of leadership in this area than you do. That's okay. But be willing to be molded, just as God is molding and shaping that vision, that you're willing to be molded through this process as well. Years ago, I was asked to lead a prayer group. I told this person I wasn't ready to lead a men's Bible study and prayer group. He told me, God is more interested in who you will become, not who you are now. And if you feel like that in your ministry, God wants you to figure out what it is you need to learn and learn it. If we're called to change lives, we need to be willing to change ourselves as well. The two books mentioned in this podcast episode were Leading Change by John Cotter and Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Balzinger. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource, and no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamlin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.